Welcome to Night School, taking a stab at the Middle Ages, a podcast devoted to medieval history and culture, and the occasional bad pun. I'm Becca, bringing you everything related to medieval religion and church history. And I'm Claire, talking about medieval literature and history. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we're here with Dr. Sarah Verskin, who is the author of Barren Women, Religion and Medicine in the Medieval Middle East a book which is free to download both from the publisher's website and from Google Books. Dr. Verskin holds degrees from the University of Chicago and from Princeton University. She currently teaches Middle Eastern history, the history of medicine, and Islamic and Jewish thought in Rhode Island. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Before we get into the main questions, we just had a few uh, thoughts and comments about your book being open access. And I mean, one of the main reasons Becca and I thought to start this podcast was because we thought that a lot of students didn't really access the medieval period as early as they should be just because of pure access reasons um, or just either misinformation or, you know, like not stumbling upon the middle ages until junior, senior year of college. Um, And usually by that time you're interests are well established so some people miss out on it um so we were just wondering if you chose to make your book open access or if it was someone else's and how you feel about um like the importance of materials being accessible to the wider public so i didn't choose originally to make my book open access uh that was something that the publisher did on their own initiative and i am extremely grateful to them My sense is that there are, at least for me, two big reasons why open access is important. The first is that, as you said, most people are getting their information on the internet and for free. And that means that if you make high quality information, as I hope my book is, um, if you make high quality information less accessible, you're not actually going to encourage more people to pay for it. Instead, you're going to drive people towards low quality information just because it's convenient. So if you care about promoting facts, nuance, uh, and expertise, then making those things competitive and widely visible uh, in the information marketplace is important. And then the second reason that I'm very happy that this is open access is because I'm a teacher and I tell my students constantly that you have to back up every claim you make in your essays with footnotes, with citations. But their textbooks don't model that. There are rarely footnotes in textbooks, and even many books published by university presses uh, don't model that. But uh, this book, as well as other books that have been made open access uh, by my publisher, they do have footnotes. And to the extent that students uh, aren't getting footnotes, Um, That's a problem in terms of pedagogy, because it's hard to model your essays if you haven't seen that very often. And it also means that students don't know why they should trust the information in their textbooks. And that makes it very hard to convince people of stuff if they are disinclined to believe what they find in those books. Um, And it's hard to disabuse them of their incorrect beliefs. 
So to the extent that open access gets people to just be more comfortable with footnotes so they don't look um, scary, uh, to the extent that it makes them more critical about sourcing, thinking critically about sourcing, expecting good sourcing, um, and to the extent that it helps them to weigh evidence, I feel that's a real benefit. Awesome. Yeah, you make great points. Um, and we're happy that it's available to the public so our listeners can check out the book. Uh, so let's dive right into the book then, I guess. So in the introduction of your book, you ask the question, how could Islamic family law play a role in shaping the experiences of infertile women when the law itself does not mention them? So we were interested in hearing from you um, what kind of led you to investigate the topics of infertility and gender in the medieval Arab Islamic world? And then also if you could speak a little bit about why you chose uh, to explore infertility specifically through Islamic law? Um, let me take the infertility part and then I'll take the Islamic law part. So when I was in my first year of grad school, I was trying to come up with a paper topic for a course I was taking on social history in medieval Egypt. And I wanted to do something that was experienced by people of all religions and all socioeconomic classes. Um, so I, I wanted something that was relevant for a comprehensive cross-section of society. And it occurred to me that infertility really fit that category nicely. So I went to the library, just looking for some scholarship that would orient me just so I would know what the major issues were that inf infertile women potentially had to face and what options were available to them. I just wanted background so that I could write what we're always told to write, something nice, narrowly focused um, on something having to do with the issue. So I went to the library and I found nothing on the medieval period at all. I mean, medieval period in the area of the world I'm talking about. There was wonderful scholarship written by anthropologists describing the experiences of infertile women in the contemporary Arab and Islamic world. And they all claimed that these experiences were rooted in uh, quote unquote Islamic or quote unquote traditional um, expectations that had been around for centuries. But they scarcely made any references to Islamic writings from those centuries. Instead, they went all the way back to the biblical period or the Greco-Roman stuff. And that wasn't the anthropologist's fault, not at all. It was because there was zero historical scholarship about infertility anywhere in the Middle East for them to draw upon. So later, when it came time for me to do my first big project, I felt that it would be um, a worthwhile contribution to begin to, uh, to make a first attempt at figuring out the general lay of the land. As for the, the law part, I should clarify to your listeners that by Islamic law, we're talking about Sharia law, uh, which is often in the news. And that most of what I write about is the theory and the practice of that law as found in books, in books of jurisprudence. But in real life, with real families dealing with charged issues like negotiating marriage, divorce, inheritance, things like that, what goes on behind the scenes might not be fully reflected in the official representation, you know, in a courtroom or before a judge or arbitrator. And what a judge chooses to do might be impacted by a whole bunch of considerations other than what some distant jurist might have written in some law manual. So 
why bother studying Sharia law books when trying to find out what infertile women were facing? Well, first, because official law does have an impact, even if it's not the only source of impact. So, for example, the fact that all Islamic jurists believe that a man could legally divorce his wife, even for minor reasons, uh, and that a wife could attempt to initiate a divorce herself, that was significant. The fact that um, sex was not seen as a necessary uh, as a necessary evil, but rather as a positive good, uh, apart from the need to have children, that attitude towards sex was significant. The fact that the Quran itself says that female family members get a share of the inheritance, and the fact that husbands do not own their wives' wealth, that was significant, even if in practice. Um, there were some communities with local customs that either skewed or supplemented how those ideas played out. And the other reason why the study of Islamic law was useful for my purposes is because the jurists wrote not just about legal rights and obligations that husbands and wives and parents and daughters had, but they also wrote about what they perceived to be those people's potential expectations, their financial interests, um, their fears. And I found those perspectives useful and quite frankly, moving, even though I know they don't present nearly the whole picture. So you describe certain ways infertility, infertility or more generally uh, reproductive uncertainty was tolerated and sometimes even embraced by medieval Islamic communities. Uh, so could you just give us some examples of this? Certainly. Um, for example, the legal texts deny the possibility of knowing for sure that either a woman or a man was infertile. And that surprised me, at least, um, because the medical texts from the same period said that you could test for infertility. And not only that, but a hadith, that is um, statements attributed to the Prophet Muhammad and other early Islamic figures, those indicate that those people the Prophet Muhammad and the people surrounding him thought that it was possible to know if someone was infertile, or at least some of the time. But the legal writings generally say you can never really label a person as infertile, even though you could label somebody as insane or leprous. Um, for example, in some schools of thought, you could say you could use those labels, insanity, leprosy, um, as grounds to end your marriage. Um, but you couldn't do that for infertility, according to many jurists. Um, when it comes to pregnancy, one example of tolerance for uncertainty is that a woman who had just been um, divorced or widowed could claim to be pregnant and thus be entitled to financial support from her former husband, his estate, for the duration of the pregnancy. And much of the time, that claim didn't even have to be verified by a second party. Um, I also have a case of a woman who was widowed, and she didn't want to be pressured by suitors into remarrying. So she says that she is pregnant by her dead husband, and she claims this for more than a year, possibly for more than two years. Um, you see, there was a belief that existed in some communities, particularly in North Africa, but also elsewhere. Um, and this belief was that it was possible for pregnancy to last for years. The idea was that um, 
fetal development could be interrupted, say, perhaps by a shock, maybe the shock of being widowed. Um, uh, and the fetus would go into hibernation and not develop. And then it could wake up much later and the pregnancy would continue in the normal way. And this possibility was accepted, at least in theory, by all the major Sunni legal schools. And for the most part, those legal scholars were willing to trust the testimony of the women claimants themselves, um, as well as the testimony of midwives, and to award women financial support on the basis of those claims. So those are some examples. So that's super interesting, especially the case study that you mentioned. Um, I hadn't heard of that before, so thank you for sharing that. So in your book, you also speak about how the legal system's understanding of monarchy as a marker of women's legal physical maturity influenced the expectations of subsequent fertility and how this informed marriage patterns. So could you speak a little bit about this as well as um, whether the typical age of marriage for Muslim women in the medieval Middle East differed much from their Christian or Jewish female contemporaries? Certainly. So in Islamic law, menarche was one sign of legal majority for women. And when it comes to family law, legal majority was particularly important um, for making decisions surrounding women's choices to end a previous marriage or to remarry. However, among all the religious groups in the Middle East that I know of, um, it was legal for girls to be married off by their fathers uh, and for their marriage to be consummated prior to menarche. And we have evidence that it really did happen. It wasn't just in theory. But what percentage of the time that happened is hard to know because we have no way of deriving statistics for virtually any Middle Eastern community that I know of. Anecdotally though, um, in the Egypt, Palestine, Syria region from, for, for which we have a lot of anecdotes, 14 to 15 years old seems to have been a common age for marriage, but we also hear of first marriages occurring at age 19, and we hear of marriages occurring at ages 9, 9, 10, 11, 12. And that's true both for Muslims and for Jews. Um, I don't deal with Christian documents from that region, but the book does go into a great deal of detail about a particular case from Catholic Spain uh, in which the bride is very, very young. One argument that I um, that I venture in the book, and readers can decide whether they find it convincing, is that it's a mistake for us historians to assume that in medieval com communities, um, people matured at the same rate that 21st century Middle Easterners do, um, reaching menarche on average between age 12 and 13. Um, I think that's a mistake. And I think it's a mistake to assume that an average medieval 13-year-old would have looked like an average modern 13-year-old. Instead, I argue that the science would suggest that the puberty process on average likely occurred over a much longer period of time than it does today for nutritional reasons. And so most girls in most times and places would not have reached menarche until their mid to late teens. And I argue that medieval writings we have actually support that claim. Now, women aren't fully fertile as soon as they hit menarche. 
they have irregular menstrual cycles at first and, and ovulatory cycles, meaning that there's blood, but no ovum. And usually that state of subfertility lasts longer the later you reach menarche in the first place. So one, two, three years. When you put all of that together, that means that in a lot of girls in the medieval period must have been marrying before they were likely to become pregnant. <laughs> and I imagine that must have been extremely stressful for families. There must have been those who feared for a girl's health if she did end up getting pregnant at a young age. And we know that because medical texts talk about how to do abortions, specifically if you're afraid that the um, pregnant woman is too young and small. Um, and it must have been stressful for families where there was an expectation of immediate pregnancy. Um, it must have put a lot of pressure on the wife or the couple if they didn't get pregnant for the first few years. Menarche was also significant from an Islamic law point of view, because once a woman reached menarche, if she became a widow or a divorcee, then her ties to her former husband would be severed only once she'd experienced um, three menstrual cycles after the divorce or death. If you menstruate regularly every month, that means three months later, you're done. But if you have a regular menstrual period, that means you could be attached to your former husband for a much longer time period, uh, and sometimes to your benefit and sometimes to your detriment. So you also talk about in your book how medieval Islamic jurists debated whether infertility could be considered cause for marriage annulment. What was the prevailing opinion on this? Um, and then could you briefly describe the four main schools of thought which opposed infertility as a basis for annulment? So the prevailing opinion among all four of the main Sunni schools was that infertility could not be grounds for annulment, although there were individual jurists who thought that it could. Um, there were three main reasons for objecting for the use of infertility in that way. Um, some claimed that there was already a set list of reasons you could annul a marriage. Um, like leprosy or in insanity, as mentioned before, and that infertility was just not on that list. Other jurors said that the only acceptable grounds for annulment are conditions that bar sexual intercourse. And obviously you can still have sex while infertile. And the third reason um, was the one that I mentioned previously and that many jurists said that there's no way of labeling someone for certain as infertile. Um, but I should mention that universally, among all these schools of thought, men could still end the marriage through divorce. Um, they would just have to deal with the financial repercussions of doing so. And as you've just mentioned, the legal text did not describe that there was a definitive way um, to label someone as infertile, but you did say there were medical texts which did describe some ways of testing infertility. Um, so could you kind of explain what were some of the ways to diagnose infertility at the time and determine whether it was the man or woman who had the medical issue? So this is where we get into some uh, strange and fun stuff. Um, medical texts acknowledged the possibility that a couple could be infertile due to a problem on the male side or the female side, or due to simply an incompatibility between the couple. So some books tell us medical books tell us that the easiest way to figure it out was simply to advise the man to try to conceive with a different partner. 
and see what happens. Um, but as the great physician Ibn Sina Avicenna points out, as a doctor, you can't really make that recommendation to somebody's wife. Um, medical books also mention uh, a whole bunch of diagnostic tests, um, but we do not know for sure to what extent those tests were put into practice. Um, they may have, some of them may have only existed in theoretical book form. Uh, we simply don't know. Um, a commonly mentioned diagnostic, which we find really from ancient to medieval times, you know, throughout the Mediterranean region, um, is that you could figure out if a person was potentially fertile by examining the effect of their urine on plants or seeds. If a person's urine makes the plant thrive, um, then they can conceive. So the, the urine is uh, literally nurturing. If the plant or seed fails to germinate or dries up or rots, it's a sign of sterility. The, another diagnostic test um, that we find mentioned all the way back to ancient Egyptian texts and ancient Greek ones and Hebrew, Latin, and of course, Arabic, um, was based on the notion that there exists a channel, a pathway between a woman's vagina and her mouth or nose. And you could test whether a woman was physically fit by determining whether the channel was blocked or unblocked. And this could be done by inserting an odorous substance, um, often garlic, sometimes onion or smoke into the vagina and testing to see whether the smell emerged from the woman's mouth. So if the smell did permeate upward, then the channel was unobstructed. And if not, then an obstruction existed. What was interesting about this test for me was that the interpretation of what this test was supposed to prove changed over time and place. So in some versions, the test differentiates between fertile and infertile women. Um, other versions uh, say that it uh, differentiates between currently pregnant and non-pregnant women. And still others claim that it uh, differentiates between virgins and non-virgins. Um, and I make the argument in the book that this test in all of these permutations had the same goal. And that was to uh, quote unquote, scientifically uncover the facts about a woman's sexual past or her reproductive future, facts which are in the present always in doubt. And I speculate in the book that the test was not primarily wielded as a weapon of intimidation against women. We can find out if you've had sex. We can find out that you've done this bad thing. Instead, I argue that it was a defensive tool for women. It was a means by which a woman could exonerate herself from accusations of fault. And she could blunt the force of men's distrust by quote unquote, scientifically putting their doubts to rest. See, I've got medical tests proving that I'm not the cause of the infertility here, or that I'm a virgin, or what have you. Um, uh, so I found uh, going through that history really very interesting. That is really cool to think about. Um, and it's like an argument that is like super convincing, but it's not the thing you first think about when you read about like these tests being performed on women. So 
that's really cool. I should say, we don't have any anecdotes about the test actually being performed. What we have are, um, say, midwives coming to a judge and saying, oh, well, we checked this woman out. She's fine. They don't <laughs> say how they know she's fine or whatever it is they're trying to prove. They just say, oh, we tested it. We've examined her. Here are the results. So I don't know if they use that test, but the fact that in books it said that you could test for such a thing probably was important so that men could say, oh, well, we now know for sure um, that the midwives have a way of knowing what they're talking about. Okay. Well, that is a good transition into our next question. Um, so how often were midwives or other females called upon to provide medical care to other female patients? And if they were employed, how did their care vary from men's care or did it vary at all? It's a great question. Uh, I wish I had better answers for it. Um, we know that midwives played a really wide variety of roles. Obviously, they provided assistance during pregnancy, labor, postpartum recovery, all that stuff. But they also had roles from the time a woman got married onward through the weaning of the child, through circumcision, um, and likely throughout the patient's entire life. But we don't know, or I don't know of any books specifically written by or explicitly for midwives in, in this region. So our knowledge comes from men. Um, and because there's no large midwifery guild and there's no midwifery textual canon, there must have been a great deal of variation from community to community. But um, male jurists in a variety of periods and locations tell us a few things that seem to have been true of midwife activities overall. They tell us that as a profession, midwifery afforded women a great deal of freedom from social constraints. Midwives worked outside their homes a lot and on their own schedule. The jurists tell us that the cost of hiring a midwife was in some places a normal wedding expense um, and that the midwife might accompany a bride on her trip to the bathhouse prior to the wedding um, or help her in her cosmetics and might have even been present around present during the deflowering. We hear about midwives performing abortions a lot. We hear about women as eye doctors, though I can't be sure that those are the same as midwives. But then again, women's medicine went hand in hand with cosmetics. Um, and that's true in Europe as well. And cosmetics went hand in hand with eye care. Um, so there could very well have been an overlap. Sometimes midwives, uh, as I said before, were called upon to provide legal testimony. For example, about whether a girl was mature enough to be married, uh, whether a wife was suffering from domestic violence, whether a woman was a virgin or pregnant, uh, whether a baby resembled its father in a paternity dispute, and uh, whether a woman in the slave market was in good health. In medical texts, um, so that's all what we know from juristic texts. In medical texts, we hear about midwives working as subordinates or assistants for male physicians um, when they're diagnosing some gynecological problems. Um, uh, or dealing with uterine cancers and other problems uh, when dealing with obstructed labor, abortions, stillbirths, things like that. Um, I should say that the medical texts also say that men do get directly involved in those things, but sometimes they also mention 
employing midwives to be involved. Some people, such as the 10th century Spanish physician uh, Al-Zahrawi, uh, described male doctors as playing almost a, a supportive or a subordinate role to midwives during difficult childbirth. And naturally, I guess, uh, we also have male professionals uh, writing complaints, uh, complaining that patients are too likely to rely on midwives and old women uh, for medical advice rather than on educated men. But as to the methods these midwives used and how those compare to what male medical practitioners were offering, it's hard to know. It's pretty clear that um, religious amulets magical stones, magical recipes were a big feature of gynecological care. Not the only feature, but a big feature of gynecological care. Um, and were prescribed not only by women practitioners, but also by rationalist educated men. I have a great 14th century Egyptian text uh, written by a jurist, and he blames midwives for introducing into the birthing room all sorts of what he views as pagan and un-Islamic ideas. And he describes in very lurid detail their disgusting practices. Um, but as you can imagine, there was a lot of bias here and there must've been a lot going on behind closed doors. So I think it could be accurate uh, to some extent, but I can't be sure. And I certainly can't tell you the difference between what um, a male practitioner and a female practitioner in the exact same situation would have done. Yeah, that's super interesting to consider kind of, you know, these women's agency and providing healthcare and things like that. And also, you know, the fact that you mentioned some of them were lifelong caretakers for these women is really interesting. And it's a shame that we don't have as many texts, it seems, authored by women about. It would be interesting to see kind of what was their relationship like with um, the women that they cared for and things like that. What we do have are um, men talking about how important the relationship between medical practitioner and patient is, both for male patients and for female patients, and how close that bond is and how that bond can create a closeness beyond a medical closeness. So in the second to last chapter of the book, I talk about attitudes towards the uh, what jurists write about the religious effect of becoming really entangled with a healthcare provider who you trust so much. And what if that healthcare provider um, is not from your religion? If you start trusting him for medical advice, are you going to start trusting him about other stuff as well? And then the last chapter is about the same question with regard to female patients. And if you're worried about the influence of your medical practitioner, the question becomes, well, would you prefer that uh, a Muslim woman patient have a female practitioner who is either a non-Muslim or who is a Muslim with all of these uh, beliefs that people like this Egyptian jurist think are wrong? Or would you prefer that she be treated by a male practitioner who um, observe, who understands Islam in the way that the jurists want them to understand Islam? Uh, so. Um, there's some great texts where they tease out um, what's worse and what's better uh, if you're concerned about those things. Yeah, that's definitely interesting, and we'll have to look into that some more. But before we wrap up today's episode, Claire and I like to end on a more 
fun or I guess next <laughs> question. Um, so what is one non-academic thing that you have read or watched recently that you've really enjoyed? Well, it's not academic, but it does kind of tie into my stuff. Um, I've been reading Deborah Harkness's Discovery of Witches. Um, it's a trilogy and the protagonist is a historian uh, studying the history of science in the Renaissance period. Um, I mean, she's a modern historian who studies the Renaissance. And when she works with manuscripts, she's remarkably successful at reconstructing exactly what the texts mean and who authored them. And uh, she knows exactly what it was like to live at that time. She's really good at reading them. But as it turns out, her insight is based not only on her research skills, but also because this historian is a witch and she has a witch's second sight that allows her to really answer all the questions that historians would like to have answered. So for me, it's a super fun indulgence in wishful thinking, uh, as well as a romance fantasy filled with witches and vampires and time travel and the like. So I highly recommend it. I have a friend who is very into witches and I'm pretty sure she was talking about this the other day. So maybe my free time. Actually, I don't really have much free time because school starts tomorrow, but <laughs> one day I'll get to it to read it. But it, it, It's a, a great way of uh, setting something really silly, but also recognizing, but, but recognizing some of these characters uh, in your life. And it also makes you feel better because the reason that they're so good at what they do is because they have supernatural powers. And right. I'd, I'd like to think that any lack of success I have is simply because I have not been gifted with that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much again for joining us today. We really enjoyed chatting with you and I think the listeners will enjoy this episode as well. Thank you very much. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes next month.